You want to do some Morse code? <laughs> Wait, do you know Morse code well enough to say something? No, I have no idea about any Morse code. I guess to do SOS, right? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like if I knew anyone who would kind of off the cuff be able to bang out some Morse code, it would be you. I know a lot of shit about a little bit of shit. I don't know like a little bit of shit about a lot of shit. So I take it Morse code is very different from the kind of code that you write for the model. Other than having the word code in them, then yeah, they don't really have uh, anything in common. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. For decades, polling has suggested that in general, more Americans lead toward the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. That advantage has been so durable that it's become part of the conventional wisdom of American politics. There are more Democrats than Republicans in America. But a new Gallup poll suggests that over the past year, that has changed, and that more Americans now identify as Republicans. It's been fodder for all kinds of commentary and analysis, and today we're gonna ask whether it's a good or bad use of polling. We're also gonna take a look at the races most likely to determine control of the Senate this fall. Senators are up for election this cycle in some of the most hotly contested battleground states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona, to name a few. And while history suggests that the House is likely to flip control, the Senate has been less predictable. Here with me to do it all, Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. How's it going? Hey, everybody. Also here with us is Politics Editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. And Elections Analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. How's everyone doing? Everyone survived the storm this weekend? Yeah, it was piddly in D.C. How, how's it look in New York? Are you guys all snowed in? I mean, we missed the two feet that was a possibility. I think we we landed somewhere in the middle or even closer to like nine or ten inches. Uh, so I was a little disappointed, but, yeah. you know, probably best for our infrastructure or whatever. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so dismissive of infrastructure, Galen. Um. You know, it's been through the ringer over the past year. So I guess it was nice that it got a break. I don't mean infrastructure as an in infrastructure legislation. I just mean, you know, the subway system, the flooding in the subways, all that. So maybe for the best that we didn't get two feet of snow. Did anyone play outside? No, mainly it took my dog out. <laughs> I went to a ramen place. No. It's usually hard to get into because it was nice. freezing cold and nobody was there. That's excellent. Nate Silver loves an arbitrage opportunity. Yeah. I love a Sunday night dinner opportunity, honestly. That's another good time to swoop in at the hot spots. It's you and the gray heads. Oh, yeah. No, Sunday night's the best night to go out to dinner, I think. Yeah. Well, while you're all out to dinner, I'm at home prepping so that we can do this podcast early Monday morning. No, I'm kidding. I write the script on Monday morning as well. Let's talk about it, though. So Gallup has been asking Americans whether they identify more with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party four times a year since 1991. For much of the past 30 years, Democrats have had the advantage. At best, Republicans have been about tied. And at other times, Democrats have taken a lead of 10 points or more. But polling from the last quarter of 2021 shows Republicans now leading Democrats in terms of how Americans identify by five points. So 47% to 42%. That's the biggest lead for Republicans since 1995, when Republicans took control of the House for the first time in 50 years. The only time on record Republicans had a greater lead was after the United States' victory in the Gulf War in 1991. If you recall, 
Bush one had, you know, an approval rating of like 90 some percent. Understandably, this latest data got a lot of attention. Some commentators have suggested that it pretends a political earthquake. Some in the polling community have questioned whether Gallup's methods are over-amplifying a trend. After all, less than a year earlier, in the first quarter of 2021, Democrats had a nine-point advantage. So I ask all of you, the panel, is this a good or bad use of polling? Jeffrey, kick us off. I guess it depends on who is doing the bad and the good. I don't necessarily have an issue with Gallup releasing average party ID data quarterly or yearly. It's more that people need to be cautious about overinterpreting this. Okay, so we're going to dig into all of that a little bit more, but let's gauge Sarah and Nate first. I think it's good, you know. I think what's more like shocking and what people have latched on to is that Democrats consistently kind of hold the advantage in who people identify with because five points isn't actually that big of a difference. But I think it's more so like Republicans have the lead and people have run away with that headline. And that might change. But it's also like kind of what you would think maybe going into a midterm environment that looks like it'll be good for Republicans based on other indicators. Yeah, I think this is worthwhile and important data. But there are two issues, one of which is kind of a perennial issue, one of which is more specific. The perennial issue is that whenever a polling firm has a finding and they kind of refer only to their own polling and not to the broader universe of polling, then to some extent, the whole reason 538 exists is to aggregate different polls together. So how much do you pay attention to like one pollster's trend without looking at other trends in different polls? Not very much, right? With that said, almost every pollster does this, right? They tout their own findings. We want incentives for pollsters to release polling. Gallup quit doing horse race polling a couple years ago, so getting more Gallup data is good. The second issue is that Gallup asks the party ID question with leaners, meaning I ask you, are you a Democrat, Republican, independent, or something else? And you say independent or something else. I say, well, do you usually lean more to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? And people will say one or the other usually, right? Sometimes they'll say, no, I'm truly independent. I don't like party ID with lean party ID because that's more volatile. If you're someone who maybe voted for Biden, but you don't like what you're hearing from Democrats lately on COVID or whatever, you might say, well, these days, I guess I'm leaning more toward the Republican side. That's more of a attitude than kind of a fixed characteristic. So it kind of tracks more with the generic ballot, for example. And for that reason, I think it's actually less valuable as an independent source of information than when you're asking what's your kind of long-term party ID. Because somebody permanently switching and saying, I identified for Democrat as many years, but I'm so fed up with the Democrats now that I'm a Republican, that's a lot different than someone who was kind of independent and floats back and forth between the parties in a midterm cycle now wanting the out-of-power party to gain more power. That would be more normal. So it's an okay use of polling, but like I wish Gallup hadn't pushed the leaners as hard. Okay, so we have two goods and one okay. I'm curious... Looking at other pollsters, what kind of data do we get? You know, if we are going to take the broader view, are there polling outlets that ask the question differently or exclude leaners? And when we look at that data, what do we see? Yeah, I mean, Charles Franklin, who is the guy who runs the Marquette Law School poll, he went through and did an analysis of party ID, but with independence uh, included and not leaned for a number of pollsters and found, you know, there was at least a little bit of a shift toward the GOP recently, but it's not quite the huge shift that we saw in the Gallup data. And Democrats still led. But with independence, you know, that maybe that's more of a long-term signal to Nate's point. Whereas with you include the leaners, maybe you're getting a little bit more of something you can use in the short term, thinking about like the upcoming midterm. 
But if you're thinking about long-running party ID advantage for one party to the other, it may not actually tell you quite as much. So according to Gallup in their most recent polling, about 42% of Americans identify as independent as opposed to one of the two parties. It's, you know, 29% Democrat, 27% Republican. And that's, you know, on average over the years. So if you exclude independents, you're excluding an awful lot of people who are going to end up voting. If you just strip them out, what does that really tell us? It tells us how big the respective party bases are, people who proudly identify as a Democrat or Republican. And there are fewer of those people than there used to be, but like, that's a different question than the question of what's your current mood about who you would want to control Congress, which can be asked by the generic ballot instead. So like, again, I want independent data points that are more orthogonal to one another, not the same, because we have lots of data showing Democrats are struggling right now. But it is that people in a temporary mood to say, I, you know, I'm sick and tired of all this inflation, blah, 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 right? Or is people permanently kind of divorcing themselves from the Democratic Party? And the non-leaned question can get at that more than the lean one does. Lean mm. one becomes like redundant with other data that we have. You don't think, though, Nate, that just because so many, like there's a trend that more people are identifying as independent, that if you kind of leave them out of the equation... We're not leaving them out. They've given us important information that they do not identify with one of the major parties. Okay. So I'm, I'm taking them at face value and not trying to categorize them if they don't want to be categorized. Because someone who is a independent who leans Democrat is going to behave differently than someone who's a hardcore capital D Democrat. So let's address what this information has been taken to mean amongst some commentators. So there was an op-ed in the New York Times last week that read, according to the Gallup organization, 47% of Americans now identify with the Republican Party and 42% with the Democrats. That sounds ho-hum, one party doing a tad better than the other, but the Gallup numbers may portend a political earthquake. This was by Christopher Caldwell. You, Jeff, I think said that that is a bad use of polling. Sarah and Nate, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think that's a big conclusion to jump to based on one data point. Right. I mean, there's a question of like, is the tide against Democrats in the polls worse than you would expect based on ordinary midterm swings? I think the answer to that is maybe, probably, but not clear necessarily. We'll see how things end up in November, obviously. We're also not looking at panel data, so let me explain that. One issue that pollsters worry about, I think sometimes they exaggerate this problem a bit, but it's still important, is non-response bias, right? Where like most people don't answer the phone when a pollster calls. And the people who do are unusual and weird in some ways. And pollsters hope that they're representative of the broader population, but they probably aren't. And when a party is kind of having a rough go of things, their voters may be less inclined to actually answer a survey. So one theory might be there's a lot of bad news for Biden. The Democrats are still out there. They just don't particularly feel like participating in a poll as often as they would if things are going well for Biden. And so it's not actually people switching so much as who you actually get on the phone answering the call. Now, if you had a survey where someone had taken your survey last year in January and they, you reach the same person again this January and they've changed, that's more indicative of something potentially. But Gallup isn't doing that. They're just like surveying different people at different times, which is the way most polls behave. So like that also leads open to the question of like how much of this is like real versus non-response bias. And again, I, I would push back and people who think it's all non-response bias, but still, I mean, this isn't that interesting a data point, I don't think. That article you cited, Galen, overstating the case here, right? But I think the flip side of this is true in the sense that 
it's not nothing either. It's not like, oh, it's actually a really rosy outlook for Democrats. You should totally disregard this poll. It's just another data point. We still need the three more quarters of this year to kind of understand the bigger picture. And so it's like you kind of want a measured response on this. It's another bad sign for Democrats. It's too early to know where this goes. It's not the sexiest headline, but, you know, that's what we do at 538. We tell you how to think about it with the context. Well, let me tell you the way I think about it, and you can tell me if this is putting too much stock in this poll as well, which is that, like, if you mean by political earthquake that there's a pretty good chance Republicans are going to do really well this fall, then sure. But that's, like, a relatively low category earthquake, given that that seems to happen in midterm environments very frequently. What we don't know is that this is some kind of a Reagan-style realignment where there's going to be some enduring Republican majority that will elect three terms of Republican presidents in a row, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Sure, there may be a big change in power in Washington, but does that say something long-term about how Americans identify politically? Is that fair to take away from this? Again, I think with the leaner issue and with the non-response bias issue, that's harder to take away from it. I would need to be more convinced that people are actually permanently changing their political identity because of democratic excesses or, or whatnot in a way that exceeds what you would ordinarily expect from like a midterm cycle. And again, I think that might very well be true, I just don't think one poll, when we have other polls showing a less dramatic shift, should really move our priors about that question all that much. Yeah, I mean, I think this also gets into sort of the question of what is this data's use for us? I think when we're thinking about like broad swaths of the electorate, trying to understand the way people identify, you know, you can say things like, yeah, in the long run, there have tended to be more Democrats than Republicans in the electorate in terms of their party identification. But if you're trying to think about what's going to happen in the midterm, yes, this shift, this short-term shift that we've seen in the Gallup polling toward Republicans could be an indicator of Democrats being you know, the non-response bias issue or Republicans being animated and some people shifting toward the Republicans because there's an unpopular Democratic president. And so maybe this is another data point that is like a good sign for Republicans, you know, looking ahead to the midterm. But there are better data points for us to use for the midterm, you know, things like the generic congressional ballot, looking at Biden's approval rating. I mean, those are things that I think would historically be more useful for thinking about that question of what's going to happen in the midterm. And if you're trying to think more broadly to like long term sort of paradigm shift in the way people identify, then I think you have to be very careful with this data because we know that at the individual level, people can shift in the short term, but they do tend to revert back to where they were. Not always, and that's important if they don't shift back, of course, but Pew Research using panel trend data between 2018 and 2020, like one in five respondents in their panel moved around in some way in terms of their party identification. Maybe it was Democrat to independent. Maybe they went from lean Democrat to lean Republican. I mean, in some way they switched. But at the end of the day, about nine in 10 of them identified the same way in 2020 as they did in 2018. And so at the end of the day, most people more or less stay in the same range where they were to begin with. So I think that's when you have to be careful about saying there's some paradigm shift. Does that panel data from Pew give us any indication of where party ID is headed currently? Well, as far as I know, Pew has not published their latest round of party IDs, so I'd be interested to see what they say. But I will say that in terms of the annual averages, Pew's data looks a fair amount like Gallup's data, and maybe that's also because they do ask the question in a similar fashion. But it sort of remains to be seen. Like, I think this is what we want is other data points. Do they confirm this or not? Do they 
aligned with this or not. And I would say based on some of the data we've seen so far, there's been a shift toward the GOP, but maybe not quite the shift that Gallup's data was showing. All right. Well, I think we have a good use of polling from Gallup. We love to see the data. We have a not so good use of polling from all of the commentary on this poll, include other data sources, look at the kinds of questions that are being asked and who's being included. It's more complicated. We love that message here at 538. But let's move on and talk about the contest for the Senate. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Looking at the history of midterm elections, the trend of the House flipping control is somewhat reliable. But the Senate is more complicated. Since only a third of seats are up each federal election cycle, the party's fortunes also depend a lot on which states are in play. Of course, the current Senate is split 50-50, so one net Republican pickup flips control completely. Jeffrey, you recently wrote for the site that control of the chamber in 2023 will likely come down to seven key Senate races, those being Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Georgia, and New Hampshire. And so as a way to introduce this year's key races, I thought we could play a game. Before the show, I asked each of you to rank those seven states in terms of how important they are to determining control of the Senate. Now, I know important is subjective. So maybe it means the tipping point state. Maybe it means the state that tells us something bigger about the electorate overall, or it could mean whatever you want it to mean. But it's up to you to use data and evidence to make your case. So is everyone ready? Has everyone jotted down their rankings? I'm ready. Ready? We got one ready. I'm ready. Nate's ready. Jeff, you ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Okay. And of course, please make your cases. I'll first have you reveal what number you ranked the state, and then we can hash it out. So I'm going to go in the order that I already mentioned. Let's begin with Pennsylvania. Jeffrey, where do you rank Pennsylvania? I rank Pennsylvania as number three. Number three? I did two, Jeff. I did two. You're also number three, Nate. Number one. Number wow. one. Ooh, out of the gate. Okay. Let me explain a couple of things because I need some structure to this exercise, right? So mm-hmm. I'm ranking the races in order of how likely I think they are to switch parties in a relatively competitive environment, meaning there are definitely universes in which the Democrats are down by like seven points in the generic ballot. In that universe, they're going to lose the Senate. Probably they lose six out of these seven, maybe seven out of seven, maybe five out of seven, but they lose enough to lose the Senate, right? And so in that scenario, things are not that interesting. 
this assumes things stay a little bit more competitive, maybe a GOP-leaning environment, but not a landslide environment. And I think Pennsylvania is important because it's a very purple state. It's also one place where I think Democrats probably have a candidate quality advantage. Um, it's a very competitive Democratic primary, but whether it's Fetterman or Lamb, those are both very capable candidates, whereas GOP may literally dominate Dr. Oz, who I would not take seriously as a candidate, but certainly unconventional, a high risk of maybe making mistakes that a more experienced and tenured candidate wouldn't. So Pennsylvania is a race that like, I think is truly a, a toss-up in a political environment that's competitive and might enable the Democrats to pick up a seat that they would lose somewhere else and therefore maintain the balance of the Senate. Okay. And we should say here that this is going to be an open race because Senator Pat Toomey, the incumbent who is a Republican, is retiring. And so there will not be an incumbent on either side of the aisle in this race. Nate, thank you for your explanation. I appreciate that. Sarah and Jeff, why number three? Well, so similarly to Nate, but a different logic, I was going for like the central question, I think overall for the Senate races in 2022 is can Democrats maintain control? And therefore I put... Georgia and Arizona above Pennsylvania, because that's to me where it really matters for Democrats in the sense, are they two down or are they like maintaining ground? Why put Pennsylvania then at number three? You just revealed your whole list. Uh, not the whole oh. list. There's still there's still all some. Right. I didn't tell you which came first, Georgia okay, or Arizona. All right, all right, all right, all right, Keep all right, guessing. Okay. And Jeff, similar logic? Yeah, I mean, I would say my, my logic is similar, but it does tie into what Nate was saying. You know, it's an open seat. So both parties have competitive primaries, but the Republican primary is a bit of a wild card. And Democrats do have Connor Lamb and John Fetterman, who would seemingly, I mean, they're very different. I mean, Fetterman's different from basically anyone. The guy wore shorts when he shook President Biden's hand the other day. Um, Nothing wrong with the shorts, Jeffrey. I mean, what kind of elitists are we here? No, no, I just think it's winter. I just think it's like it was like 15 degrees or something in Pittsburgh. It was it was a little interesting. Um, I think there actually was some explanation that he had been at the gym and then that was that bridge collapse and he like rushed over and then the president showed up and he's like, oh, <laughs> but anyway, it's it's amusing more than anything. But I think the main point is that Fetterman and Lamb could be pretty decent statewide candidates for Democrats, whereas the Republican side is more unclear at this. It's point. complicated. Yeah. But do you think this means whichever party wins Pennsylvania is probably winning the Senate? Since, Nate, you put this as number one, would you go so far as to say that? Well, you get into like conditional probability issues here, right? Conditional in the fact that- I love conditional probability issues. I know. Everyone in this show does. All the listeners <laughs> we do love too. We love a conditional probability issue. But like in the environment where the Democrats are able to win an open seat race in Pennsylvania, which is a purple, maybe even slightly red-leaning state- that suggests that things at the very least aren't terrible for Democrats. And in that world, Democrats have a decent shot at holding the Senate. Maybe the House is still a heavier lift, but that might be competitive too. So like a lot of information is revealed by that race. Okay, next up, Nevada. There we have a Democratic incumbent in Catherine Cortez Masto. Nevada, according to 538 Partisan Lean, is R plus two and a half. There are a number of Republican challengers lining up to compete for that seat. Let's begin with Nate. Where did you rank Nevada? Yeah, I have it number two. 
I put Nevada at number seven because I just my log- yeah my logic there was like if Democrats lose that like there are other problems at that point for them I realize it's a very competitive state but like we've got an incumbent going there I was thinking both New Hampshire Nevada like if those are the things that we're focusing on there are bigger problems elsewhere okay Jeff I put it number four sort of in the middle of the pack. Partly because of what Sarah said, which is, you know, if Democrats are losing that, it may just be sort of the show's over for them. But at the same time, I can't write off a scenario where they manage to maybe pull off a win in a state like Pennsylvania, but maybe Nevada because of the way it's maybe it's been trending a little bit more Republican or something. Or there are potential issues with Hispanic voters having maybe shifted a little to the right in Nevada and elsewhere. These are things that are kind of unclear, but I didn't want to write off the idea that maybe Democrats are doing better in a state like Georgia and Arizona than we expect, but maybe Nevada shifts a bit more to the right than Hmm. we expect, and maybe Democrats make a play for Pennsylvania. So it's important, but maybe not the whole ballgame. Yeah, would we say Nevada Sunbelt? Like, yes, Yes. right? Like Sunbelt-ish. So that was another reason. I think long-term, Democrats, you know, we saw in 2012, 2016, and 2020, like the Sunbelt has been inching more towards them. And yes, they didn't win Georgia until 2020, didn't win Arizona until 2020. But like there's been more consistent movement in like the suburbs there towards Democrats than what you've seen in states like Pennsylvania and the Rust Belt, right? And that was another factor here. I feel like if some of those shifts, you know, we saw in Virginia, for instance, in the gubernatorial race that college educated voters didn't really shift towards Republicans. So if that holds true, I'm betting- Wait, did we see that? Yeah, no, no, no. The suburbs moved back towards Yunkin and back towards Republicans. But there was not a big move, at least per the exit polls. I'm not quoting precinct analysis here, but we did not see college-educated voters move back towards Republicans. At all or just not to the degree of other segments of the electorate? So I'm looking at an article we did following the uh, Virginia election and analyzing exit polls. We talk about how Yunkin made huge gains in the suburbs. But interestingly, it doesn't look like white college educated voters, often disproportionately associated with the suburbs, drove Yunkin's victory. We still saw more of that educational polarization divide. And I think that's because we grossly overestimate how many people have a college degree in this country to begin with. Like the suburbs does not equal college degree. It's just kind of how we talk about it. Anyhow, I think you've seen a lot of college educated people, particularly in like the suburbs of Atlanta, move towards Democrats and have moved at a different and faster rate than parts of the Rust Belt. And my guess is maybe like you don't see more gains towards Democrats, but it's like that's more long term hospitable territory for them versus like a state like Pennsylvania. Hmm. That makes sense. I think Nevada is like Pennsylvania in the sense that it's a state where Democrats kept winning by narrow margins and there's no particular reason why you don't eventually lose a race by a narrow margin in a state where you've been winning by narrow margins. Nevada is atypical in some ways in that it's actually quite working class. It's diverse, but it's quite working class, working class whites, working class Hispanics, working class Asians increasingly. That seems like a real soft underbelly in Joe Biden and Democrats' approval ratings right now. I don't know how Nevadans feel about COVID, but like it's a state that relies heavily on tourism and in-person activity. So it's had some challenges as a result, although I've been to Las Vegas a bunch over the past year, it's still pretty lively. It's also a state where voters are historically pretty apathetic. And to me, apathy is 
more of a danger to the president's party because that party usually doesn't turn out as much in midterms. You can imagine in Pennsylvania, Democrats dragging every voter across the finish line. In Nevada, I'm not quite as sure of that. You also have some polling showing the most likely GOP candidate, former Attorney General Adam Laxalt, is, well, it's all been partisan polling, and both partisan polls show their candidate ahead, but that would speak to like a competitive environment overall. I, I just think people are sleeping on on Nevada as being, as Galen said at the start of the segment, it's actually a Republican-leaning state relative to the country overall. Mm-hmm. Do I think that will be true in 12 years or eight years? I, I don't know, right? I mean, it's very rapidly diversifying state. But Nevada doesn't have like all these knowledge sector jobs that you might have moving into Atlanta, for example, yeah. um, mm-hmm. or even Texas, right? It has gaming, tourism, service sector, entertainment, all those overlaps. That's a lot different than like some tech company moving their offices to Atlanta or Austin or something. Sleeping on Nevada. I might be. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it is worth noting to Nate's point that uh, just to take some states here, Arizona is like a wider state than Nevada, but the share of white voters in Nevada, a larger number of them are white voters without a college degree than say in Arizona. Like Arizona's white voters are more college educated. And so if you're thinking about what's going on within the parties, it does seem like that that's a potential vulnerability for Democrats in Nevada, especially if they lose their advantage among Latino voters to some extent. You know, if it slides a bit and they're losing more white voters, you know, maybe that's the path to victory for Republicans there. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue because the next on the list is Arizona. Sarah, how'd you rank it? Okay. Arizona, I ranked number two. I hope Nate and Jeffrey are at least somewhat close on that. And that was in the sense of, again, like this is one of the states Democrats have to defend, right? Moving into 2022 and just thinking about Georgia and Arizona and the fact that like GOP legislatures still kind of dictate what happens in that state. You know, they've both passed restrictive voting laws in Arizona in particular. It was the never ending audit about who won, you know, swing states where I think Republicans have had their guard up and trying to make it a little bit more challenging here moving into the midterm elections. You know, Mark Kelly at this point, he's kind of kept a low profile in the Senate. So it'll be interesting to see if Republicans can mount like the right challenger to take him on. He also has a lot of money at this point, but I think Arizona is going to be a key battleground. It also just leans more Republican than the other states that we have talked about. So in a like mildly favorable environment towards Republicans, it really should be their state to win. All right. Yeah. To your point, our partisan lean metric still shows Arizona at R plus seven and a half. We said Nevada is R plus two and a half. I'll just give you Pennsylvania as well, because we already did it. That's R plus three. So that's pretty Republican territory that the Senate map is being fought on. So you had it at number two. Jeff, what number did you have it at? I also have it at number two. All right. Nate, where do you have it? Three. Three. Okay. Okay. There's some convergence on Arizona. Jeff, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, maybe this is a good time. We were talking about how the states we've talked about are somewhat Republican-leaning relative to the country as a whole. And I think that's where, you know, just sort of more broadly speaking, that Republicans may be in decent shape going into this midterm election because, at least historically, the party that is not in the White House, if they are defending seats that lean some, at least somewhat in their direction – they are very, historically at least, have been very, very likely to hold on to those seats, even if they're open seats um, and where their incumbents retiring. So Harry Enton, friend of the pod, former 538er, did some analysis over at CNN about this, and he found that since 1982, 
86 of 87 races with an incumbent from the party not in the White House defending a seat that leaned somewhat toward their party won. And in open seat races, it was 32 of 35. So if you're expecting the midterm to not be great for the president's party, what the president's party probably needs are some seats that lean in their direction at least somewhat as an opportunity to pick up. And the problem is that these really important seats, for the most part, are not that. They, they lean somewhat Republican. So that may make the task a little more difficult than you'd even expect for Democrats to hold on to the Senate. So you're saying it's number two in importance because if Democrats don't hold Arizona, it's over. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, and because Arizona and Georgia are Republican-leaning a bit more so than, at least historically in, in recent times, based on our partisan lean data, than, say, Nevada or Pennsylvania, you know, that might make it tougher for them to hold on. But I will say that one of the reasons I have Arizona number two is also because, and not number one, for instance, is because Arizona is, according to, we, we call it elasticity, and that has to do with sort of how swingy the electorate can be. And Arizona is a bit more elastic than not. Nate wrote about this uh, years ago. We've been using it, in, I know, in the forecast model to sort of understand how much a state could, could move around. And Arizona's electorate, I think, is potentially swinging in a way where Mark Kelly could hold on. That's maybe the reason why I don't have it at number one, is because I do think that because of that, there is a potential for sort of his personal brand to at least aid him to some degree. Um, and Republicans have kind of a messy primary there, potentially. Maybe they nominate a weaker candidate. So those are just some factors. But I do think that Democrats probably need to hold on to Arizona to, to hold on to control of the Senate. Yeah, I mean, Arizona's kind of, I mean, it's less quirky than Nevada politically. It does kind of fit this profile of like a diversifying, increasingly college-educated Sunbelt state in ways that don't work as well in Nevada. Look, I think the question in all these races is, well, there are a couple of questions, right? One is like, how much does incumbency matter? It used to be that if you're an incumbent, that you have a buffer, even if the environment's pretty bad, people tend to like incumbents. Over time, that buffer has decreased, although sometimes people hold on when you wouldn't think. Susan Collins held on, for example, in the previous cycle. So you might think that Mark Kelly is a decent incumbent, tends to stay out of controversy in a way that his colleague in the Senate, Kirsten Sinema, does not. Former astronaut, you know, but his polling is pretty mediocre. His polling is kind of more 50-50. And so then you have this issue about the GOP primary is a bit messy. You have a former attorney general running there, but also some more Trumpian kind of right-wing candidates. The GOP electorate in Arizona can be a little bit quirky. You know, there's something in the fact that the GOP's had kind of a losing streak there Recently, you shouldn't put too much stock in that any more than you would Nevada, but still. Well, um, you'll be shocked to hear that Martha McSally is not actually running in this set uh, race. <laughs> <laughs> Don't count her out. There's still There's time still to time. file. There's I think still time. Come on. Not a good line yet. Yes. So it's like, is Kelly's incumbency enough to overcome Arizona's mildly red lean in what should be probably a mildly, if not more, red cycle and maybe some GOP candidate? Mishaps, I mean, I don't know. I think it's a close call, right? It's why you kind of get into the toss-up territory and why it's one of the more important races. I know we have to motor, but I just have one question. Didn't we at one point track down the data on how successful astronauts are in their electoral bids and they're like the most successful profession for making it into elected office or something like that? You know, I don't remember, but I can think of a couple off the top of my head. John Glenn was very successful uh, as a U.S. senator from Ohio 
was it Jack Schmidt, however, was not so successful in New Mexico. I think he won one term and then lost re-election in like 1982. I think it's Jack Schmidt. Well, maybe I'm remembering wrong, but in general, I think America loves an astronaut. Although that will be put to the test this fall, Arizona. Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson, yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe not such a good record there too. Well, a good record for a while and then not a good record. Let's move on. North Carolina is number four. And to give you some background on that race, according to our partisan lean metric. It is an R plus five state. The Republican Senator Richard Burr is retiring. And so this is an open seat again. Nate, let's have you start off. Yeah, I have this seven. Number seven. Sarah, where do you have North Carolina? Interesting. I put it at number four, but I feel like I understand Nate seven. Like the Carolinas remain Democrats like white whale. They never do as well, neither as they hope. Okay. And Jeff? Yeah, I put it at number six and was sort of thinking of Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill, like a Democratic (laughs) rock up the hill. Um, And that's how maybe North Carolina has been for them in recent years. Yeah. I just open seat. I like similarly for Pennsylvania being kind of a wild card in the sense of like no incumbent. I was like, okay, North Carolina, open seat. Nate, you took the boldest position at number seven. What's your rationale? I just think it's, Closer to a red state than a purple state and a red state in an open seat race in likely a Republican leaning environment. I think they just where you get into like it's too far a bridge for Democrats to cross. I mean, I would tier these races differently. Right. I think actually like there is a top tier of five and I wouldn't hugely debate which you put in those five. For me, there's a next tier of three, one of which we're not considering. But I, I think Ohio. like Florida no. is pre- Florida. No, Florida. Okay. And then Ohio's next year down. Florida, I think, is about as plausible for Democrats as North Carolina, right? They're kind of similarly red-leaning. Rubio is, I don't know if he's the most compelling (laughs) incumbent. Republicans don't necessarily love Rubio. I just think you need a lot to go right to win a six-point GOP-leaning state in the environment like we're likely to see in November. Not so crazy that you can't consider it, but like this is kind of down in like Mm -hmm. the – 20% 20% chance territory. So in other words, me. like, if I told you that Republicans won the Senate race in North Carolina, and that's the only piece of information I told you, I haven't told you very much about what happens in the fall, which is maybe why this would be ranked. Yeah, so. if you tell me Democrats win that one, then, oh, maybe something went really wrong for Republicans. But, I mean, as, as usual, any of these GOP primaries could get messy, Especially in the South, right? You could wind up with a suboptimal from an electoral standpoint nominee. But the Democratic primary field's also a little bit discombobulated too. And like I just think this is like a straight up party identification race, most likely in North Carolina. And I think Democrats don't win that, especially in a year when they will likely have less enthusiasm in their electorate than Republicans do. All right, let's move on to our next state. But first Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? 
The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Fifth on the list, which you have taken issue with, but we're going to stick with it for now, is Wisconsin. Sarah, kick us off. Sure. So I've put Wisconsin at number five. I thought the open seats, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, a little bit more uncertain there. Johnson, like I know he is kind of a embittered incumbent. He's got problems. Democrats have a good field there. And it was a competitive state too for Democrats of 2020. You know, they won it barely, but it just seems unlikely to me that that one's going to be the one that tips things. So Wisconsin is, according to our partisan lean metric, an R plus for state. And of course, Ron Johnson, the Republican incumbent, is running for re-election. There was some question. He had said he wasn't going to run. He is going to run. And some of the Democratic challengers, well, possible challengers, of course, there's going to be a primary, include Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, along with the son of the Milwaukee Bucks owner, Alex Lassery. Um, There's some other folks as well also running there. But you said number five. Jeff, how do you rank Wisconsin? Yeah, I feel like Sarah and I went into this with somewhat similar views on how to rank it or our thinking, because I also have Wisconsin at number five. It could be very close, but at the same time, Ron Johnson's an incumbent in a potentially Republican-leaning midterm year. So that's, you know, that's going to be tough for Democrats. Neat. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of striking similar themes here, I think. Um, Are you also number five? I'm five, yeah. Although, Ooh. again, I think this is kind of, we're all within the same tier here. Really, so my one to five is not that, but I don't think Johnson's a particularly strong incumbent. He's, I think, flirted a lot with kind of <laughs> some of the more authoritarian elements of the GOP. I mean, Wisconsin's Republican base can be pretty MAGA friendly, but Democrats have some relatively strong candidates there. But he is an incumbent in a somewhat red-leaning state in a red-leaning year, and that just becomes like, even though Wisconsin can be a little countercyclical sometimes and contrarian and surprise you, I think it's not a toss-up. I put it like that, right? It's Less than a toss-up. Some of the other races are toss-ups. And so I think it's more likely to swing than North Carolina. But number five seems like a comfortable slot for it. All right. So next up is, drum roll please, Georgia. Georgia is R plus seven and a half, according to our partisan lean metric. Of course, there's a Democratic incumbent there and Raphael Warnock. The Republican challenger seems to be pretty clear at this point, which is... Once Upon a Time, University of Georgia star, Herschel Walker, football star, I should say. Let's begin with Jeff. How did you rank this? Yeah, I ranked it number one. Number one. Okay. Sarah? I don't think I'm alone. Yeah, I was going to say. And uh, continuing to to rank things similarly to Jeffrey, I also put it at number one. Number one. Nate? I have it at four. Number four. Ooh, I like the disagreement. Hash it out, guys. Okay. From my vantage point, Warnock is a very capable incumbent who just kind of won a race in January 2021. And the environment's different now, understood his victory was narrow, but like candidate quality, I don't quite know what to make of Herschel Walker as a candidate, certainly empirically, people who have not held elected office before, even if they're famous former college and pro football players, underperform, they make mistakes, they have gaffes. I think there's going to be a very high turnout in Georgia, which I think is helpful to Democrats because like in a midterm year, if you have lower turnout, that tends to help the challenging party. So the fact that like Georgia is so much the focus of media attention, I think in some ways could help Democrats drag all their voters out to the polls. 
in a weird way, precisely because it's like so much more on the radar than Nevada, I actually think Warnock might be a little bit safer than in Nevada. Hmm. Okay. All right. Now you got to defend your number one positions. To me, part of it comes down to Georgia is very inelastic. So like I was talking about Arizona earlier being eh, somewhat swingy and it's got kind of a, a portion of its electorate that could go either way. Georgia is a state where there are very few swing voters. Um, and for me, the thought is if it is a Republican leaning environment, the ability for Warnock to win over that sliver of swing voters, while he does have, you know, maybe he has high turnout among black voters, among younger people, maybe higher than in some other places. It's just so on kind of a knife's edge to me that I wonder about just the slight shift to the right being enough to doom him uh, in a state where they're just, everybody's pretty locked in. So that just, to me, was a, a reason to peg it there. But like, what about the most important factor? So you think because it's likelier that Democrats lose than not, But what does that tell us maybe more importantly about control of the Senate? Just that you get that one piece of information and you know the rest of the story. Right. I mean, if Democrats are losing Georgia, they're probably not holding on to the Senate. You know, it's a state where we know it was actually the narrowest Biden win uh, of any state. But we also know that like the Atlanta metro area is getting uh, bluer. And so maybe there's some demographic shifts going on there that are helpful to Democrats. Maybe it is high turnout, you know, as Nate was saying, because there has been so much attention. But if, despite all that, the Republican-leaning environment is enough to get the GOP over the top there, then, you know, just to me, it's a thing where there are trends that would be favorable to Democrats, but if they're still losing it, they're probably cooked in the Senate. Yeah. Okay. So... I put Georgia at number one, and I'd hinted at this earlier, but I do think a big question I have going into the midterms is how do college-educated voters vote? Historically, it's been Republican. We've seen it shift towards Democrats. And that actually can be really good in a midterm environment, right? There's a lot of reasons why that might not be enough for Democrats, particularly, you know, if voters of color don't turn out in a midterm environment, that would hurt Democrats. And that historically has been what's happened, right? But this college education, like, factor... Because it's been such a Republican stronghold for so long, I'm curious how that plays out in this midterm cycle. I mentioned Virginia earlier, which still showed college-educated voters backing Democrats. I think particularly in Georgia and Arizona, the shifts we had seen prior to 2020 happen, I'm curious if those continue to shift. And my, you know, my bet there is if Democrats like stand a chance of maintaining control of the Senate, they really need college-educated voters. And I think college-educated voters are going to be super important in both Georgia and Arizona. I mean, one more thing I pointed about Georgia, there was a Quinnipiac poll that came out recently, maybe it was last week, that had Joe Biden's approval rating way underwater there, but Democrats very competitive in both the governor and senator races. Those are both toss-ups, roughly speaking. That's actually, to me, like a little bit bullish for Democrats because it means that voters are making a distinction. They're saying, I'm not happy with the way that national politics are going, but like I'm sticking to my side here in Georgia. It is very inelastic, as Jeff put it. There's also a chance that like Let's say the COVID situation is a little bit better by November or the economy inflation is a little bit better. And then Biden's less underwater. That might imply that like Democrats would be ahead in those races. So I don't know. I mean, I agree. It's one of several races where if Democrats lose and they're probably in trouble, it should be a pretty fair fight. But for some reason, intangibly, I just think Nevada is more likely to flip. That's probably wrong. All right. 
Our last state of the day is New Hampshire, which is actually, of all of the states we've discussed, the only state that has a partisan lean metric that favors Democrats, but it's by 0.3 points. So maybe we should think of that as negligible. But of course, there is a Democratic incumbent in that seat in Maggie Hassan. How did everyone rank it? I should know, I could do process of elimination, but I'm going to make you say it because I didn't keep track of all of your numbers. Nate, where do you rank New Hampshire? Six. Six out of seven. Sarah? I also had New Hampshire at six. And Jeff? Uh, I ranked New Hampshire seventh on this list. You know, I wrote this article about the seven contests in the Senate that were decided. And this is the one sort of leans Democratic state of the bunch. But at the end of the day, if we're trying to figure out what's going to happen in the midterm, if this state is flipping, Democrats have lost the Senate by a bit, probably. Question. You've been talking about elasticity this whole time. New Hampshire is very swingy, maybe the swingiest or second swingiest, according to our elasticity metric. So in an environment where the country has sort of turned on Joe Biden, it would seem like that might be a prime state to flip even more so than a Georgia. Yeah, it's both the bluest state and the swingiest state of the bunch. And you're right that those facts are in some tension with one another. It's also a small state. There's some evidence that in smaller states, the incumbency advantage matters more that a Democrat, is it Hassan or Hassan? I never know. I always get this wrong in my head. I think it's Hassan, Hassan, right? That she might have a closer relationship with her constituents than a Democrat in a state with 30 electoral votes might or something. And there's a finite pool of candidates and the most formidable GOP candidate, the governor, Sununu, is not running. And that leaves a kind of somewhat disarrayed Republican field. It's also one of the only states where one candidate consistently has led in the polls, and it's Hassan, the incumbent, although with lots of undecided voters, so not particularly safe lead. So, I mean, this is a state that, like, again, the first five races you, we talked about, you can consider those all toss-ups, meaning that, like, you could debate who's actually favored in each one. Maybe Wisconsin's kind of at the fringe of not quite being able to do that, which is why I had it fifth, I think. But Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, you could actually debate which party is favored to win there. I don't think you have a debate here in New Hampshire, right? You have a very, very, very losable race for Democrats. But if you were given a pile of money and told to bet, then you would, I think, know which side to bet here probabilistically. And so that's why I put it more with like North Carolina, where you definitely bet on Republicans retaining North Carolina. I think that's right. I mean, if Sununu was in the race, I think it's a different story. As Nate said, like the polls we have so far, it's not clear yet which Republican will run against Hassan. But She's leading in the polls, right? Like, it should be her race to win. I think the other interesting thing with, like, Arizona and Georgia and why I rank them higher, too, is the Republicans are going to be kind of testing out, to the direction of the party in those races. And I know we're not talking about governor's races, but, like, if Kemp loses his primary challenge from Purdue, will voters in that state, you know, we saw the Senate races shortly thereafter, a very contentious, you know, lame duck period with Trump, him not really conceding. Voters in Georgia, like, didn't vote Republican in light of that. Like, do we see a repeat of that this fall with these kind of candidates on the ballot? Like, you don't have that in New Hampshire right now, which is another reason why I think it just is kind of a race that should be Democrats to win and why I would rank it lower. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting that we did see in 2014, you know, a Republican-leaning environment. Republicans took back the Senate, but they did not flip New Hampshire. 
Gene Shaheen, the Democratic incumbent, won there despite the Republican-leaning environment. Now, I think Shaheen is more popular and more well-known in the long run than Hassan. Both were governors before they were senators. And so maybe Shaheen is a, is a stronger incumbent than Hassan. But I do think it's worth noting that prior example from a Republican-leaning environment and in a case where maybe Republicans had a pretty notable nominee in Scott Brown. Now, he had been a U.S. senator in Massachusetts, so maybe there was some penalty for Brown actually as uh, you know trying to carpetbag basically. But at the same time, you might have a situation for Republicans in New Hampshire where they nominate someone who's not that well-known or someone who can't keep up with Hassan in terms of fundraising and doesn't have the profile, of course, that Sununu would have in the race. So those are factors that would give Democrats at least an advantage at this point. Okay, so we have come to the end of the road. There is some notable disagreement here. I noted that the only state we discussed that has a partisan lean that leans Democratic and really only very slightly is New Hampshire. How likely does it seem that given where the winds are blowing at this point, Biden's approval, some generic ballot polling, you know, last year's elections that we can look at, like perhaps all of these races end up in the Republican column. Well, look, look, Biden did win six out of these seven states, right? Well, I guess one thing that like, this is a little bit of a detour. Late in the podcast, you don't want to hear Uh-oh. detour. Do you, <laughs> I mean, but, like, you know, we're canceling our third segment, so we'll take a detour. Okay. Our partisan lean index indicates what happens in an environment where the national environment is tied meaning that in a presidential race, for example, the popular vote's exactly tied. I'm not sure that we actually have that as a long-term equilibrium. I think to some extent, like say both parties are acting strategically, it makes sense for the GOP to accept losing the popular vote on average because they have these advantages in the way that the Electoral College is structured or the Senate is structured, right? So it's probably rational for them to be more conservative than they would be otherwise they can still win 50% of races or more in the Senate with less than half the vote. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like you compete in the competition based on the rules as they exist. And so you may. Yeah, be... maybe maybe in a neutral political cycle that Democrats actually win the popular vote by two or three points or something. And in that case, all of a sudden, all these red leading states become truly purple again. Now, I think it's going to be like worse than an average cycle for Democrats, but maybe that means that they lose the popular vote by one or two points and not by – I'm just saying that like when you've had one party win the popular vote for the presidency, what is it now, seven out of eight times or something, then that begins to add up a little bit. And it also manifests itself in the fact that like in several of these races, the GOP will probably nominate a candidate who is more conservative than the candidate that you would pick – strictly to maximize your chance of winning that race. Maybe Georgia and Herschel Walker, I mean, maybe he's an exception, right? Because he's kind of a charismatic ex-football player, right? But you're going to have some oddballs nominated in, I would think, a few of these races. And that kind of manifests itself, the fact that the GOP is not trying to be a centrist party. It might not matter. Democrats have so many issues that historically the trend is that parties tend to lose these toss-up races at the midterms when the president's in power and the environment's against them. But I don't quite think that portraying these as a group of like red-leaning states is quite capturing some of the nuance there. Got it. Okay. I mean, I think it's possible that Republicans could win every single one of these races. But do I think it's likely at this point, you know, I would say it's unlikely that they sweep them. Could they win five or six of them? Sure. 
I, I think what you have to think about is it is readily, you know, somewhat red leading turf, but you know, some of these states may be moving in ways that maybe they're not quite as red as they used to be, you know, like a Georgia or Arizona. And maybe New Hampshire is even bluer than we realize because maybe the more Trumpian Republican Party isn't as good a fit for a state like that. That's a possibility. And so knowing that, you know, you have to be, I think, a bit more cautious mm-hmm. on the idea that they could sweep all of them. But of course, if Biden's approval rating is 38 percent or something come November, right, Republicans could sweep them uh, because of the environment. Yeah, I am curious, though, just like for the statewide component of this, you know, it makes a lot of sense to run very Trumpy candidates in House districts that are like, say, Marjorie Taylor Greene's. Does it make as much sense on the statewide level when these were really close states at the presidential? Maybe it's not like Trump wasn't competitive in some of these states, but I do wonder the extent to which voters sent a message in 2020. It largely seemed to be, we don't like Trump. We're actually okay with a lot of the Republican Party. And, you know, maybe that means don't run a very Trumpy candidate at the statewide level. Time will tell. Time will tell. And in fact, we are going to be tracking, as I always say, we're going to be tracking it because we're going to be following all these primaries. And so we're going to see which part of both parties comes up successful in these primary races that will determine what kind of candidate is running statewide ultimately. But I think we're going to leave things there. This was a good good introduction to the contest for the Senate in 2022. Let's leave things there. Thank you so much, Sarah, Nate, and Jeff. Thanks, Galen. Hey, thank you, Galen. Thanks, guys. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. And Emily Vanesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.